Super Talk Mississippi media production. Coleman Taylor Transmission, servicing Central Mississippi for over 60 years. Their ASE certified technicians offer dependable transmission services, a warranty, and record services. Call Coleman Taylor today for all your transmission needs. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbard, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Hump Day. We have made it to the middle of the week, and finally, I wasn't freezing this morning. <laughs> it's a little better. Uh, from a weather perspective, looking a more sp- a bit spring-like at least, huh? Oh, yeah. It's going to hit the uh, 80s for a big swath of the Magnolia State. Dang, heat wave coming through. Well, it's about par for the course for Mississippi. Yeah, exactly. On the program today at 1120, Clayton Laguerre, president and CEO of Merchants and Marine Bank, He'll be accompanied by Jeff Trammell, the COO of Merchants and Marine Bank, and they'll discuss Canna First Financial. That's Mississippi's first financial institution providing banking services to the newly minted medical cannabis industry. That ought to be a uh, fascinating conversation. And then at 12.05, Senator Briggs Hobson. He represents Issaquina, Warren, and Yazoo counties, serves as chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee. We'll get an update from Senator Hobson on the legislature, what uh, he's hearing about appropriations and what things look like headed into the uh, big, uh, oh, anticipated (laughs) conference weekend. Could get contentious. Yeah, it just might. We'll discuss some of the bills hanging out there that might draw a bit of uh, contention, as you say. Looking forward to those interviews today. I'm wondering, uh, you know, we we talked yesterday about, was it Iowa State University holding a woman of color (laughs) event? I was thinking about it a little later. Why didn't they just go ahead and, and switch all the words up? They could have put the uh, the French preposition in there, so it'd be we're mixing de couleur. <laughs> well, our good friends, I say that with tongue in cheek, of course. At the USA Today, you know who those guys are. They print a daily newspaper. <laughs> just last year, you recall. They name Rachel Levine, 
what's she like, the deputy health secretary or something like that. Number two person at one of those bureaucratic organizations. She, of course, is uh, known for being a male who says at least she transitioned, he transitioned to a female. I can't even keep up with it anymore, honestly, all the pronoun crap. Well, last year, is an admiral in the U.S. Navy, I oh, believe. Yeah. yeah. Admiral Rachel Levine was named by the USA Today as the Woman of the Year. And I'm just wondering if we'll ever have another situation where there's some award for a woman that's won by a biological woman. It's like the virtue signaling of the day, right, is to award it to a transgender for their courage. Well, in Minnesota, there is a state rep named, named Lee Finky. It could be Fink. I don't know. It's F-I-N-K-E. Who transitioned from a male to a female in 2017 and was just named by the USA Today as the 2023 Woman of the Year. <laughs> Capturing this award after less than three months in office, the first transgender legislator appointed to the Minnesota House of Reps after winning 81% of the vote in her district. Now, what are the odds that this person receive this award exclusively because they're transgender. Well, considering I hadn't heard of them until this moment, it's pretty much on the nose. <laughs> what else did they contribute to society to garner such an award? No, nothing. But here's what the paper said in their write-up. This is someone who has been in, quote, an activist for transgender and LGBTQ plus rights, as well as Black Lives Matter, almost her whole life. What about when they were a his? Or is it Z here, whatever the pronoun is? I don't even know anymore. No, no, no. You, you can't use their dead name. That's violence. Okay. <laughs> Calling somebody by the name their mama gave them is violence somehow. Oh, gosh. So, the lawmaker said, this was quoted in the article, I know what I'm doing here, right? I know why I ran for office. I know what it means to want to find someone in office who is like you. So that's why I'm running. I want to do many things across many issues, but at the end of the day, the reason I'm here is because nobody who's trans has ever been here before. Oh gosh, the social media <laughs> universe went nuts. Said um, Sarah Fields, president of the Texas Freedom Coalition, in all caps, he is one of USA Today's Women of the Year. By the way, it's not the Woman of the Year, I apologize for that. Listed as one of the women. There's a group that are recognized. So it's women, plural. 
So many wonderful women truly deserve this kind of recognition. Hashtag USA Today can shove their contempt towards real women where the sun doesn't shine. Another commenter said... Might be enlightening in some of these cases. <laughs> exactly. Another commenter said, Biological male Lee Finky beat out every biological woman in Minnesota to become one of USA Today's Women of the Year. But, of course, the Minnesota House Democrats, they, of course, are all in the trans movement, cheered the award, tweeting... Please join us in celebrating this well-deserved recognition of our colleague. What the hell did they do? What did this person do other than get elected as a trans? <laughs> oh, my gosh. There's someone on Twitter, a, a Twitter account, styled as Vision for the Blind, the number four. Says our movement says a photo of Representative Finky here. Our movements for justice are lifelong. Meet Minnesota's first transgender legislator. Wow. Is this gonna end anytime you think? I don't feel like it is. Eventually. Did you see that there's a when the fad wears off and the trend wears down and there's something new to be I guess so. It'll be even crazier. <laughs> It'll be a hold-my-beer situation, right? You saw there's like a, I think it's a private school in Vermont. Is it a Catholic school? They basically said, we ain't competing anymore. <laughs> and and uh, I think it's volleyball. One of the women's sports, high school sports. I remember seeing something about that, but I didn't dive into it. Because they're allowing men to compete in it so-called transgenders, and they said, we're not doing it for safety reasons. I think it's a Catholic school. They even said, this is not for religious reasons, it's for safety reasons. So some soccer player, some professional soccer player has now said that, um, uh, what was I going to say, has now said that um, she supports transgenders playing soccer. That, but then I also learned that the, like the Olympic soccer team, I may have this a little off, but like that level women's soccer team practices against a 15-year-old high school team, men, male high school team, which makes sense, does it not? But now we're going to let them play? It's a, at that level, we're just going to fill the soccer team? You won't be able to tell. Let's just get rid of it. just call it unisex soccer or something like that. It'll only negatively impact the women's game. We're in the Element Well Studios. We're coming right back. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk, Mississippi. 
<laughs> oh, how appropriate. Yeah, so just to follow up, it's U.S. forward Alex Morgan supports transgender kids in sports. Says the U.S. national team should have internal discussions about playing games in states that restrict transgender kids from participating in sports. The team is currently preparing for the She Believes Cup, a round-robin tournament with Canada, Brazil, and Japan starting next week. She's worried because matches are scheduled to be played in Florida and Texas, two states which have enacted laws aimed, they're aimed at transgender athletes. No, they're aimed at biological females to make it fair. That's what they don't get. We divide by age group. Why don't we just eliminate that? Let the 16-year-olds play baseball with the 10-year-olds. What would that look like? The disaster. Who wants to watch that? What do you think would happen? I asked you this offline. Share it with our audience. I know you track this a lot. Yeah, actually, a bit I of think a soccer the, fan. I think she believes Cup's already happened, so this may be a statement from a little while. It back, was. But. It's it's from late February, middle February. But yeah, I mean, it's it's not uncommon for the U.S. women's national team, the best female players in the country, to play scrimmages against boys' teams. And Te- there's teenage boys, yeah, high teenage school, boys. right? Yeah. And there's there's an example of one where they were. Warming up for, I believe it was the World Cup that year, and they were playing the FC Dallas under-15 boys squad. And FC Dallas is an MLS team. MLS is nowhere near the, the pinnacle of men's professional soccer, but it's it's the professional league here in America. This is the 15 and under, or under-15 team in the academy where they, they teach them, they learn soccer instead of going to math class sometimes. Five to two, 15-year-old boys beat the best women in the world because the U.S. women's team is usually ranked number one in the world. There's a difference in physiology. So the, the women, let's be clear, are fully developed in their prime physically at that age, right? I mean, that's your prime And among an the best in the world. Your high school... You hadn't hit your stride as a male, for sure. You likely no, have not hit not your athletic. Under 15. Right. You're just getting started. You may have a, a few early developers, but, yeah, you're, you're not going to have a team full of grown men. Right. Exactly. Like you would in college. So what would that look like? What, what, if the, what if the USA men's team played the USA women's team? What would that look like? While there are a lot of jokes about that, because the women's team is usually ranked number one in the world, and the men's team is right. usually ranked, if they're doing well, in the top 25, it would still be a slugfest where the, the men would probably score a dozen goals on them. Well, speed is pretty important in soccer, oh, yeah. right? Speed, I mean, physicality. It's a non-contact okay. sport, but as long as your shoulders are even and you're both running, you can pretty much lean on them. Well, the point and is it's not a foul. Well, the point is going to make... The fastest female on the female's team couldn't outrun the slowest male on the male's team. Probably not. I just don't think. Speaking of which, what would track look like? It'd be a joke. What is up with this crap? 
This is out of control. So we got the USA Today recognizing someone who just five years ago was a male, biologically, and decided, I'm tired of being a male, I'm going to transition to a female, gets elected to the Minnesota legislature, and now it's front page news. Because they're one of the women of the year in USA Today. Unbelievable. So I ask once again, where are the feminists? Because this is only going to negatively impact women's sports. This is only going to negatively impact women's private spaces. And we've been saying this over and over and over for years now. And none of the feminists seem to take note of the fact that they're losing ground. You now have men winning Woman of the Year. You now have men who couldn't compete with other men dominating women's sports. All because they wear a dress and grow their hair out and say, I'm a girl today. Unbelievable. It doesn't change the biological, physiological differences between the sexes. If you're going to ban people for taking steroids, you shouldn't allow somebody that was born and raised a man to compete in women's sports. That's a good point. Because that is the purpose of the steroids, is to enhance the, the natural metabolism. Well, look at it this way. What were the Russian gymnasts doing back in the 80s in the Olympics? Injecting themselves, the female Russian Olympics, right. were injecting themselves with testosterone. Testosterone is a performance-enhancing drug. What hormone do men produce more of? Testosterone. Right. And the East Germans as well, right? Okay. I mean, they didn't even look like females, honestly. Many of them did. I mean, they had, they had muscle tone and shape and definition that typically you only see on males. You can achieve some to some degree, but the lack or the difference in testosterone and the abundance of estrogen stands in the way of that, right? I mean, that precludes it. So if Alex Morgan, playing for the U.S. women's national team, were to go in the locker room and get a syringe out and inject herself with testosterone and then get drug tested for performance-enhancing drugs, she would fail. Unbelievable. And she would be banned. Well, you remember we had uh, swimmer, NCAA swimmer Riley Gaines on the program about three weeks ago who swam against Leah Thomas, who used to be like Bill Thomas or something. I don't remember the exact... But had a normal male name and just decided to transition, was a very average male swimmer. I mean, like, what did she say? Number 460 in the country. And then goes and swims in the female events and sets the records. And that's fair. The party, the cult, that's always blasting the right, you're unfair. They consider that fair? This has got to stop. Uh, it's it's sickening that we're and it's not just sports it's it's all privacy areas for women i mean take take sports out of it look at uh, you go to a bar a local watering hole and there's a long line to the ladies room and a short line to the men's room well if a lady goes in the men's room the men are going to do one of two or three things they're either going to be very impolite or they're going to laugh and joke and whistle or they're you might even run into a situation where they vacate the men's room and let you have it. Right. So it's it's not a big privacy concern for men when women enter their space. Reverse mm. the roles. 
Say you got a dude going in the woman's room. That's going to cause chaos. It's going to cause a scene. It already but has. When he puts a dress on and makeup and grows his hair out, we're supposed to accept it? Hmm. Again, I ask, where are the feminists? They're afraid. They're afraid to speak up. And that's something that has become more prevalent as conservatives fear the cancel culture payback for, for even the mere mention of anything related to politics, religion, or this kind of nonsense. Scott Adams, the creator of the comic strip Dilbert, he's a prime example recently. College students across the country say they fear sharing their political and religious beliefs, that they'll be ostracized, ridiculed, castigated. Three In a recent survey, three out of five employees fear losing their jobs if they mention any sort of conservative leanings at work. Now, I'm not a fan of discussing politics and culture, cer- certainly polarizing cultural issues at work. I'm not. But, look, people are people, and when they take a bit of an intellectual break and they interact with their colleagues, yeah, stuff like that's going to come up from time to time. Just doesn't need to dominate the discussion in the workplace. But it shouldn't be such that, you know, if you just merely discuss your political leanings or your religious beliefs that you could be fired. Now, if you're being abusive, if you're harassing, being hostile, but the problem is, Rhino, if you use the wrong damn pronoun, that's considered hostile. It's a microaggression. Yeah, that's ridiculous. It's got to stop, got to stop, got to stop. Because it is endangering the First Amendment. I mean, there's got to be some reasonable restrictions. Yelling fire in the middle of the theater is the example that's frequently used, but just saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, that's ridiculous that you could get fired for that. Coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. Well, studios, Clayton Laguerre and Jeff Trammell from Merchants and Marine Bank are going to join us at 1120 to talk about the Canna First Financial. That's the uh, first financial institution in the state of Mississippi to provide banking services to the medical cannabis industry. And then uh, Senator Briggs Hobson will come on and tell us about Spending all that money they got appropriated here, and we got conference weekend coming up. You know, there's also a bunch of ARPA money. ARPA. I'm so sick of that, honestly. But remember, we had to have that to rescue the economy, 
Two years later, we're still sitting on what? Three, four hundred million bucks here in Mississippi. <laughs> but we had to rescue. That's two years. If we ain't rescued by now, we ain't around. I mean, it's just so silly. And this is why we have this rampant inflation, ridiculously high interest rates, high from the in from the standpoint of the compressed period of time in which they were raised, which was a big factor in the the banking debacle currently going on. So we got all that. And today, those zany Fed governors, they're going to tell us what their plans are with respect to the benchmark interest rate. Today is the day. About the time we're off the air, we should learn the market's kind of flat because they're all waiting. The expectation, probability, is that we'll get a quarter of a point hike. Uh, at this point, the futures don't have any possibility of a half a point hike. And just a month ago, it was half a point, was what was expected. So the futures which are just really, essentially they're just bets is what they are on what's going to happen with the Fed funds rate. Last I looked, 70% chance we'll get a quarter point, 30% chance we'll get nothing, 0% chance we'll get half a point. That won't be as important in my view. Remember, we've talked about this before, is when, when the Fed chairman, in this case it's Jerome Powell, spends about... 45 minutes to an hour with a really boring <laughs> commentary on the economy, the Fed's plans. And remember, we had um, disclosed here on the program that investors look for certain key words, one of them being ongoing. <laughs> it's going to be the guidance that will, I think, influence the market. That's got to be the most depressing game of bingo ever. <laughs> you just got your card and you got the, all these buzzwords, and every time he hits one, it's like, oh no, there it goes, the bottom's falling. <laughs> and that is literally what happens. You can watch the market. I've done it almost every time the last few years. I watched those comments. And I got the market up at the same time. And on certain words, up or down, you can just see the influence. So that's what's going to happen today. It won't be so much whatever rate adjustment takes place, that announcement. It's the ensuing commentary and the guidance. Here's what I think may happen. He may say, okay, quarter point, we're going to rest. If that happens, look for a rally. Look for a huge rally in the markets. But if we get this ongoing, <laughs> look for the markets to pull back. That's just the way it works. It's crazy that this one person and their, their his colleagues, the Fed governors, have so much power and control. It shouldn't be that way. But that's the way it works. Wow. On the ceasefire text line, mailman Clayton says Max Klinger was a man before his time. He, of course, from MASH fame, always trying to get a Section 8. I'm surprised we can air MASH these days because 
surely that's got to hurt somebody's feelings. That Klinger dressed in female clothes. Corporal Max Klinger. I don't know. I think Alan Alda's checked enough boxes for that's the prob- liberals to leave him alone. That's probably true. Greg and Newton said, it's not a she. Don't call it a she. I can't keep up with it, Greg. I apologize, honestly. It's uh, too complicated. Let's see here. Only women bleed would be appropriate from Alice Cooper <laughs> on the ceasefire text line. That's bumper music. We have to be so deep into the book of Revelations that there isn't too many pages left, says Kevin in Monticello. Basketball. They refused to play a trans in the playoffs. Okay, that was about the Vermont Catholic school, I believe. I think you're right. Thank you for that on the ceasefire text line. I couldn't remember if it was basketball or volleyball, but right. I think the coach made a statement, or the, the principal, the administration representing the school made a statement said, this is a safety issue. I can see that. You're playing basketball? Females against a male? Because you know where basketball injuries happen a lot is First, you go up, you come down, you don't land on your feet. But it's the bumping and checking when you're flat-footed and not ready for it. Stuff just happens. Fact is, females just react slower. I'm not trying to be offensive about it. I'm just stating the facts, physiological facts. And you got some male that's moving around in the lane, and you're flat-footed, and they're going for the hoop, and they just bulldoze you. Yeah, you get hurt. And that's this is happening in Vermont. No bastion of conservatism. The home of uh, who's my favorite senator up there? I'm Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Give me all your money. Sounding like the Fed may increase interest rates again today doesn't seem like their strategy is working, says Ben from Madison. No, it's not. And the reason it's not, Ben, is because people, even when they're out of work, still have a lot of disposable money to boost inflation. That's what I believe is going on. Used to be you lose your job, you're, you're really starting to cut back. Not anymore, it seems. Let's see, should be called He Believes and Needs a Cup. <laughs> Amanda from Pike County. What's the name of the tournament, the She Believes Cup? The soccer tournament we're talking about. Oh, gosh. Well, Donald from Oxford sent us a little Photoshop Dr. Seuss <laughs> book cover. Cedric from Dido says, just start a trans league for every sport and be done with it. The problem is, Cedric, there's like a long list of genders. You'd have to have a non-binary league as well, right? Would that cover it? Non-binary? Well, no, no. The, that's the problem with this, is when all this first started cropping up, and people stopped deciding it was going to be a treatable mental illness and they were just going to give in to the inane and asinine fantasies of crazy people, there was a compromise offered because it was about bathroom usage. And they were like, well, fine, we'll just we'll, we'll have a special bathroom that really only you're allowed to use <laughs> and it'll be the end of it. We won't have to worry about the wrong bathroom or any confrontations. No, it'll be a, a bathroom for you. And the argument was that's exclusionary. Oh my gosh, exclusionary! Well, the 
the practical reality is you cannot, this is what they don't get, you cannot accommodate every outrageous human whim. You just can't. And if you think about it, this whole movement of inclusion is about trying to accommodate every deviation, every departure. That's what it's about. They want to tell you, well, we got to make sure we got enough females, we got we got enough uh, uh, LGBTQs, we got enough trans. No, you cannot build an organization around that. You just simply can't without because you're accommodating such small factions, you're going to end up lowering standards to accommodate. They don't want to hear that. That's not to say a LGBTQ person or a trans person or a minority person can't be as effective in a job. Can't It's not qualified. Can't perform. No. It just means that when you're looking at the pool of candidates, and you choose one to check some inclusivity box, but they really don't measure up to the other candidates' qualifications. But you got to do it to be inclusive. That's when you're marching to mediocrity. You just are. We've uh, we've got some sound we're going to play later on from uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, candidate for president. You've heard me talk about him before. He weighed in on Joe Biden's veto of the bill which would prohibit money manager, managers from investing your money based on non-financial factors, such as climate change and their efforts towards diversity, equity, and inclusion. Coming right back in the Element Well Studios. with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Whatever happens, I leave it all to change. Another heartache, another failed romance. Oh, Nana, does anybody know what we are living for? I guess I'm Back in the Element Well Studios, it is middays. Timmy McGee says, hell, I'm tired of being old. Can anything be done about that? Just identify as young there, Tim. It's a state of mind and heart. That's all it is. <laughs> it is crazy. Uh, it won't be long before they start giving an award to the women with the largest male anatomy, says CC in Senatobia. We need a neo-feminist movement. I consider this an attack on women, on women, and no one seems to care. Danette from Carroll County. I totally agree with you there, and that's Rhino's been screaming this since we've been discussing it, which seems like it's been since I started doing this show when it really started to sweep the country. This whole gender ideology really is what it is. And it has consumed the Democrat Party. 
And I don't know that this is a Democrat or, or a Republican issue. It shouldn't be. It should be just common sense. But you've been screaming, where are the feminists? They won't speak up. As we just said, citing the, uh, this was an article in the Washington Times about conservative workers, students across the country are afraid to express their views. It shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't be afraid to express your views. Again, if you're hostile to another person, abusive, harassing, yeah, that's a problem. But if you're just expressing your views in a in a in a respectful way, that should be allowed. I don't see Therein that as being lies a problem. The rub. They don't believe there is any respectful way to disagree with them. Okay. Because disagreeing with them is causing violence on them. Well, that's ridiculous, of course. So somewhat related to this, this story just out overnight, the New York City Audubon Society, you know where that's going, they're changing their name due to the white supremacy legacy of John Audubon. Now, I know you're a lot more versant in some of this history of this country and historical figures, and I am Rhino, did Mr. Audubon contribute anything to society in a positive way? Was he? I'm struggling to even remember who he is. Oh, the uh, of course, he's the guy that, that um, founded the society that of course, studied birds. Oh, Audubon. Audubon. I'm sorry. I said Audubon. <laughs> Audubon. I usually say Audubon when we're referring to the road in Germany. Right. But, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Audubon Society. Yeah, right. That, that's the guy. They're probably upset with him because he killed the birds Correct. before he posed them and painted them. But... Oh, no. They said he had slaves. He had slaves. And used slaves in the gathering of his data, in his research. He, of course really did more, I think, to inform us, educate us about birds, nature, and conservation. Aren't we worried about conserving the planet? He was a noted conservationist, was he not? Oh, yeah. And that's that's why I thought the argument might be because he killed the birds, is because he he killed them in order to study them and paint them so that you would have a portrayal to know which ones to conserve. Okay. Hmm, interesting. So he he, was he wanted to basically document every bird that he could get his hands on. Okay. And he wanted to document as much information and be as detailed as possible about them. Wow. Well, the, uh, the society has grappled with the potential cost of expunging the name of the organization. 10,000 members since it was founded in 79. My mother-in-law, may she rest in peace, was a big member, and as a hobby, she did what's called birding. She and my father-in-law would just take to the highways, lived on the coast. And Mississippi is blessed with lots of birds, lots of species, and just go out with her big old binoculars and, and, and just observe and document it. In her house, it was always a tradition for my wife and I to give her an Audubon Society calendar 
And my wife still, <laughs> in the vein of her mother, kind of inherited that interest. Feeds the birds every morning. We have the bird feeders all over the house and observes, and and the birds fill up our yards, of course. Well, this was kind of all started by this guy. But he's out now because he's deemed a white supremacist. Do we only measure people on, I, I, I guess, the, the liability side of their ledger? Do we never measure their positive contributions? Can't do that anymore, right? No. Oh, but that's fair, right? That's deemed as fair. I just wish these folks would research Marx a little bit. <laughs> I totally agree, because this is right out of the book. We're taking a break. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. And now, and now. another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back to Hour 2 of Midday Super Talk Mississippi, live from the Element Wealth Studios on this hump day. Yes, indeed. Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. Speaking of which, so the Audubon Society, Audubon, uh, just a couple of comments they made. Executive Director of the New York City Audubon Society, Jessica Wilson, wrote in an email to supporters that the uh, nonprofit organization will begin a process to develop a new name that, quote, embodies our organizational values and is inclusive and welcoming to all New Yorkers. <laughs> so they acknowledge. Uh, Mr. Audubon's contributions to art and ornithology, but they deemed his views and actions towards, quote, people of color and indigenous people to be, quote, harmful and offensive. Wow. It's all they care about. It's all they focus on. Nothing else matters. This guy didn't do anything else. It's you're going to be perpetually looking for someone in our history that likely doesn't have some tie because it was widespread. It's commonplace. It's not condoning it. That's not supporting it. It's just a fact. But yet, we don't pay attention to current day human rights abuses happening on our planet. Those never enter the conversation. We've got to focus on 200 years ago. It's just unbelievable. Mm. So they've not come up with a new name. What could you possibly come up with that couldn't be offensive to somebody about something? Because everybody's offended by something these days, it seems. This is crazy. In the meantime, we got the military 
West Point is conducting pronoun role-playing exercises. We're not teaching our cadets at West Point how to prepare for, oh, I don't know, war. No, no, no. we got to have role-playing exercises on proper use of pronouns. Cadets were forced to participate in preferred pronoun play-acting during training time allotted to prevent sexual assault in the military. This is crazy. The left wing in this country is out of control. Their ideologies now being embraced by our service academies. You think that our most ardent foes like China and Russia, you think they're doing pronoun play acting? No. Are they plotting how they can overtake this country militarily? I mean, they... They really, really wish they could. Right. But they could cause problems. Oh, yeah. Outside of now antiquated nuclear weapons, Russia doesn't seem like that much of a threat, but China still would be nasty to try to handle. No doubt. And their war machine is being built up. Their arsenal of assets. It's disturbing. So I'm looking at a printout here of the facilitator guide used at West Point. <laughs> and the, uh, the first thing, of course, in the guide, the first statement section, describes the objective of this training. It says, the objective for this training is for cadets to gain competence in their bystander intervention skills. Bystander. <laughs> oh, gosh. So at the end of the role play, the um, argument gets a little heated in the role playing. Clearly nobody's going to change the other person's mind, and one of the cadets storms off because they can't handle the interaction. <laughs> or the cadets agree to change the subject. And just let it go. That's part of the training. Other role play scenarios include friends in high places when dealing with someone receiving preferential treatment, dirty money when dealing with sextortion, and helping a friend seek legal help, and a stinky situation. That's the name of the exercise for confronting, quote, appear about. Poor hygiene, a stinky situation. This is what we're doing at West Point. How do you get to West Point with poor hygiene? Unbelievable. Well, so we talked yesterday about Biden's first veto, vetoes legislation passed on a bipartisan basis that would have prohibited money managers from investing their clients' money, such as those who manage these big pension funds and so forth, investing that money based on non-financial factors, such as climate change and ESG. Vivek Ramaswamy, candidate for United States president, he weighed in. Here's what he had to say. 
President Biden's first veto was yesterday, and it related to actually promoting ESG values in the retirement fund investment system. Okay, so what is this ESG acronym? You've probably heard about it. Some of you might not have, but you should know what it is. It refers to the use of environmental, social, and governance factors when investing your investment dollars and also voting your shares. And the long story short is there's a small handful of investment managers in this country, firms like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, Invesco, and others that are using your money to create a country that you never voted for. How does that work? Well, it turns out if you own a share of a company, that means you don't just get the financial entitlement, you also have a right to vote on behalf of your shares. You also have a right to speak on behalf of your shares. And yet what's happening today is they're using your money nonetheless to effectively force American companies to adopt policies like racial equity audits or emissions. President Biden's first veto was yes. Yeah, so think about that. There are third parties that conduct racial equity audits of corporations. And that's one of the things that these big investment management firms would look at when deploying, when allocating capital, is whether or not a company has a racial equity audit process. Like, what does that have to do with producing returns for their clients' money? Now, Joe Biden's statement, he said he vetoed this bill to protect your money, to protect returns and ensure high returns. And he basically says that because he believes, as does the loony left, that only companies who are focused on climate change and have some sort of climate change recovery plan or plan to endure climate change are resilient against climate change, and also have all these other social justice initiatives in place, only they will be profitable. That's what they believe. That if a company doesn't adopt all that ESG stuff, if they focus on, well, merit, qualifications, performance, experience in their hiring, in their promotion, in their compensation, in their production of the goods and services for society, that they can't make any money. It's insane. That's what they believe, honestly believe. I just got teased related to this subject. Saw a notification here. Representative Benny Thompson from Mississippi and the NAACP are calling for federal racial equity investigation at the Maximus Call Center. Now, what does that have to do with Mississippi? There's a big Maximus Call Center in the Pine Belt area. You, you may have made some calls to companies with whom you do business, and you may not be aware that there's a pretty large call center operation in the Pine Belt. I know DirecTV, for example uses uh, Maximus. And so what's being alleged here uh, by the NAACP, the Communication Workers of America, they say that 48% of their call center employees are black and Latino women, that they represent, however, just 5% of executives. 
300 call center employees and found that more than 60% applied for higher positions, 75% were turned down. Well, I wonder if it had anything to do with qualifications. Just because you apply for something doesn't mean you're qualified for it. No, that never enters the equation, does it? We're coming right back with Clayton Laguerre and Jeff Trammell for Merchants and Marine Bank. Stay with us. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi from the Element Wealth Studios. Joining us now, Clayton Leisure, President and CEO of Merchants and Marine Bank, and Jeff Trammell, the COO of Merchants and Marine Bank. Gentlemen, thanks for joining Middays. Hey, thank you so much for having us. It's an honor to talk to you. Yeah, good morning. You bet. Thanks. So uh, tell us about this uh, Canna First Financial. This is uh, apparently the first financial institution in the state of Mississippi to provide banking services to the uh, recently launched medical cannabis industry. Yeah, so we're, we're really excited to be able to uh, talk about this. Um, <clears throat> a couple years ago, we began watching the ongoing developments in terms of the, the state's progress toward legalizing cannabis for medicinal purposes. And after it was legalized last year, our executive team kept waiting to see uh, banks jump out and, and put in place the necessary controls and frameworks to be able to help those entrepreneurs and business leaders who invested heavily to bring medicinal cannabis to Mississippi, but we just didn't see any banks doing that. And we judged there would be a great opportunity to fill the gap, to stand in the gap, if you will, and to create a company that tailored to banking medical cannabis professionals in Mississippi rather than forcing them to deal with their own cash logistics and what to do with the money. Uh, we have the ability and expertise in-house to create an ecosystem where these companies could deposit money, transact the way they need to, without having to worry about their bank not satisfying the pretty rigorous federal expectations around monitoring and tracking all the dollars flowing through the bank. And so with that, uh, after a tremendous amount of due diligence, we launched Canna First Financial in the uh, first half of 2022, and since that time, have had a tremendous amount of success. Uh, Jeff Trammell, who is our COO of the bank and our holding company, has served as the managing director for Canna First Financial up until now, and uh, so is not only familiar with the banking element of that, but also very familiar with the Mississippi medical cannabis industry itself. So, Jeff, what is it about uh, providing banking services to this industry that, that is perhaps a problem, a hurdle for just standard treasury services, banking services in general? Well, the first thing is you have to re remember that cannabis is a Schedule One drug. It's right. illegal from a federal point of view. Most banks, regardless of what you've heard recently in the news, are really risk-averse. We don't like to violate federal laws and whatnot. It's just not a good idea to, to have to violate this type of laws. But it is state legal, and this has been done before in other states. So we understand that people need to transact business. Right. We've heard stories in Colorado before banking, cannabis banking was here, of uh, uh, business owners, successful business owners, 
in the cannabis area space having millions of dollars in their businesses and in their houses, homes, and that potential of having that much cash around is just not a good idea. That's what the banking system was designed for. We've had calls with other bankers in Florida where people were paying their their cannabis dues and their taxes in cash and duffel bags of cash, mm. bringing that to the courthouse to pay their taxes. That didn't make any sense either because carrying cash again is a bad idea, especially in duffel bags and large amounts. Sure. So those are some of the challenges that we've had that, you know, it, it's, it's illegal, but it is legal from a state point of view. So we designed our program with the Department of Justice uh, co-memos, which have been rescinded with those guidance along with uh, financial um, yeah, the FinCEN guidelines and with some guidance from a federal and state uh, banking uh, advice. And we designed a program with that in mind to make it accessible to people in Mississippi, especially that's our fo- focus market, to have banking and, and have that service they have a right to. Yeah, and Gerard, what I would add in, you know, unlike a traditional business that that has a sale, um, you know, maybe we sell hot dogs and we get our cash from the hot dog sales and we go down to the bank to deposit that, there's no questions. Most banks are very happy to accept those deposits. With medical cannabis, there are very strict requirements on any bank that accepts those deposits to track down to the source of that transaction. So we have been able to put in place a framework whereby we can help dispensaries track every single transaction transaction down to the dollar and tie that back to the medical cannabis recommendation cards, which all of which is required for us to legitimize the deposits that are being made in the bank. So it's a significant amount of added compliance burden on the banks. And frankly, that's why you see so many banks just stay away. It's a lot of work to do it the right way. And and worst of all, we've heard stories of banks getting into this without the controls. And whenever they have their ongoing bank exams, the bank examiners tell them they have to exit the business. And so what that means for medical cannabis bank clients is you get a call from your banker one day saying, hey, you've got to close your account in 30 days. And that's not good from a business standpoint. So that's why we wanted to go the extra mile to build a program here that can Applied with all the outstanding guidance to be safe and stable. Sure. So, Clayton, explain the business relationship, the legal relationship between Merchants and Marine and Canna First Financial. Sure, that's a that's a great question. So, Canna First Financial operates as a division of Merchants and Marine Bank. Legally, they are the same entity. Think of it as a doing business as or trade name. Uh, we felt that it would be appropriate to stand that up as a standalone brand uh, to make it very much tailored and curated to the medical cannabis industry in the state. But legally, it is a part of the bank. Uh, it operates using Merchants and Marine Bank's federal banking charter from FDIC. Uh, uh, so, all accounts with us are FDIC. FDIC insured, uh, and that also means that all the medical cannabis clients that bank with Canafers have access to the bank's full suite of products. Now, those are tailored based on the enhanced risk management requirements we have around those accounts, but legally it is one entity. It is branded separately, and Canafers Financial is a trademarked brand at this point uh, that, that operates as a division of the bank. Okay. So you're, you're obviously sharing uh, same uh, physical assets and resources and and back office systems and so forth, or is there some separation there? 
there is a little separation from the executive management standpoint <clears throat> in that um, we do have a standalone director of operations for Canna First Financial. Okay. They have their own website. They have their own internet banking system. But all that does ride on the rails of Merchants and Marine Bank's back office. And the reason that's important is uh, Canna First is actually one of three separate companies that Merchants and Marine Bank operates this way. Uh, we have Canvas Mortgage, which is a standalone mortgage company. Sure. Same thing, it's a division of the bank. Most recently, we launched Voyager Lending, which is a small business administration loan funding source. And so we had built our back office years in advance ahead of this growth. And so we have the ability to service multiple companies and multiple brands from the same back office and get economies of scale that way. Yeah, and one, one more thing to add there is all our cannabis-related customers all of our information is segmented, segmented or segregated in a way that we can identify this customers any time. Okay, they're, they're part within a distinctive branch within our overall financial system that we have here. So it allows us to at any time know who is in Canvas Bank and who's not. Uh, we can track their deposits and, and all their transactions, all within guidance that we have. Uh, that have been issued by FinCEN and by the Department of Justice. So, Jeff, will Canna First be be serving uh, all the various elements of the ecosystem, distributors, processors, growers, retailers, dispensaries? Yeah, that's a great question. We, we plan to be a full service. So we want to help the cultivators, dispensaries, uh, and everyone in between that handles Mississippi cannabis, uh, medical cannabis today. Okay. Eventually, we hope to extend that to some type of lending, which is kind of a sore spot for most uh, banks in our industry, in the cannabis industry. Lending is, you know, the access to capital and, and to put that capital to work. That's been a really hard line to, to, to figure out because of lack of federal guidance and state guidance. Yeah. So uh, uh, what about your customers? Have you, i got to believe you've been receiving some calls. You're probably promoting these services to the industry, working with uh, the association and the players in the business. All the time. You know, we were just one of the members of both the uh, 3MA, which is the Mississippi Mar- Medical Marijuana Association, and the Mississippi Trade uh, Cannabis Trade Associations. Both the great organizations give us a lot of information and we also give them information on the banking side to help their customers out. We go to trade shows. We're willing to talk to anyone, anytime about what medical cannabis is and how it helps people in Mississippi. And we're actively promoting ourselves 24-7. Yeah, well, this has got to be a relief to the industry because this was a concern before the legislation was ever passed. It, it has been, and you're, you're, you're spot on. I think it's been a concern nationwide. And, um, again, you know, our bank has a long history of standing in the gap when times are tough for people. As a community bank, we've been there through depressions, through recessions, through everything in between, and I uh, love helping small businesses. And so um, it, it really, we judged it to fit who we are standing in the gap and trying yeah. to find a solution that would, would help these people. And, again, we just want to make the point. I mean, these are, these are people who are doing it the right way. These are not back alley, you know, sort of deals. These are yeah. people that have invested millions of dollars to do it the right way, and they're tightly regulated by the state. And so we just wanted those people to have a safe haven to put their cash and to be able to transact like the business leaders that they are. Appreciate you guys uh, coming on. I just kind of wind it up by saying these are institutionalized organizations. You guys have institutionalized the banking aspect of this industry, and this is really the way to do it. Appreciate you guys coming on. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the time. Have a great day. You too. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Please stay with us. 
Is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well Studios, that would be the great REO Speedwagon. Still not in the Hall of Fame. Dang. They need to be there. Well, let's see. Uh, Thomas and Greenwood say, is this associated with Merchants and Farmers Bank or totally separate? This is a different entity. He says, if my bank ventured off into that, I'd switch banks. Interesting. So, Thomas, you would not approve of being a customer of a bank that serviced the medical cannabis industry? That's that what you're saying there? Ben from Madison says, it's time for the feds to at least normalize banking in the cannabis industry. It would be good for the communities, the businesses, and even law enforcement. It, uh, Merchants and Marine is based in the Pascagoula, Mississippi. Just got a text from our friend Secretary of State Michael Watson. Appreciate that, Mr. Secretary. I knew it was on the coast somewhere. wasn't sure exactly where they were headquartered. Uh, very impressive. So, But I will say this. What these guys have done, the key word that uh, Mr. Ledger used, did I say it right, or is it Legier? Say uh, his name, the CEO. Leisure. 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 Thank you. Appreciate it. Want to get that right. The key word I took from his initial uh, comments were that they've tailored their systems, their treasury systems and so forth, their banking services for this industry. And he's right because in order to, to be in compliance with various regulations, federal and state level, there's additional tracking required. And they've implemented this in their systems. And that's that's the important aspect of this, so that there's just no question. So this takes the burden, as he indicated, off of the uh, their clients who are in the industry of having to do that internally, which they're doing anyhow, honestly. But now you, you've got your financial partner doing it as well. And so you've got all the the documentation, all the record-keeping in place to show that you're in compliance. That's what's important about this. And they've decided to make that investment, to do so, additional level of tracking, of record-keeping, all digital, of course, just to ensure that uh, those operating in the industries don't have to worry about that aspect of the business. So. From a business perspective, it was a good idea, in my view. I'm sure that will likely pay off for them. And it's probable that we'll see other financial institutions follow suit. Maybe not. I can't believe they'd be the only one in the state, given that the industry is statewide. It, it would, I think, be 
plausible that other institutions will gear up, implement such systems? You know, this is kind of crazy, though, honestly, because I still believe within five years the whole thing will be, it'll be taken off Schedule 1, is what I believe. I think we're headed in that direction. I think that won't see it probably in this presidential term with a year and a half remaining on it, but I think in the next term, likely to see some movement. There certainly is support for that in the Congress. I think we'll see it. So, Ben from Madison says it's time for, for that to be normalized, and, and I, I tend to agree with you. Uh, let's see here on the C Spire text line. Can I request some REO Speedwagon and a bumper hopper? So, Rhino took care of that for you, Jeff, in Forest County. Can you use plastic at a dispensary, or is it cash only? I don't recall. You remember anything about that? If I had to guess, I would say cash only. Just because when you're using plastic, you are in fact using third-party banking systems right. to do so. So uh, that's a good question, and I don't know the answer to it. We'll see what we can find out. Uh, the other thing I would say is Representative Lee Yancey might be tuned in listening, and he is someone who could likely answer that question. I, I do remember discussing this, Rhino, and we were talking about this a lot on the program, and we had all the details at our disposal, but I, I honestly don't remember right now what the deal is. But, you know, hearing uh, Clayton, uh, Clayton Leisure, the CEOs talk about clients bringing in bags of money. Kind of makes me think it's probably all cash. That's a little unusual. Uh, I'm just trying to find if there's any random card that would because basically what you're, the sticking point is it's still illegal federally. It's still Schedule One at the federal level. So if you have a, a credit card, those are nationwide companies that have to obey federal law or they get in trouble, so they're not going to allow you to use a Visa or a MasterCard or American Express. Yeah. If you've got a debit card through a national or a regional bank, the debit card's more than likely going to have a Visa or a MasterCard or American Express or something logo on there, and so it, you can't use it that way. So it looks like it's cash only. I, I haven't found any loophole to get around that. That, that seems to sound right to me as well from when we were talking about that. Um, and and it, you would just think because, again, most of the credit card systems are operated by banking inst- – they are all banking institutions – that uh, it would be a problem just as it is providing the standard treasury banking services. No, I would not put it past any dispensary to have an ATM either just inside the door or right outside the door with an outrageous transaction fee for you. But uh, yeah, yeah, with a debit or credit card, you can put it in the ATM and get a cash advance or take some money out and yeah. pay cash. That makes sense. And it won't be the usual couple of bucks. It'll probably be a ten, twelve, fifteen dollar fee to use the ATM there. But yeah, that's yeah one way to make money. Thomas says he'd be worried about his deposits being at risk when the federal government decided to enforce laws. 
Uh, okay. I think it's minor risk. States have had medical cannabis for some time. If they started to enforce laws, they would literally crash the economy or do major harm to it because it's so prevalent. 38, 39 states now, I think, with medical and 25 now, recreational or in the process. Yeah, so I'd, I'd say that is fairly low risk, but that's fine. I respect your um, your prerogative there, your choice, as you see fit. Whatever happened to TVA not wanting to provide utilities for companies breaking federal laws? That's a good question. I don't know. I remember that subject coming up where maybe TVA said we're not going to provide power service, energy, to those operating in the medical cannabis industry. I don't know that that ever came to pass. I don't know that there are any medical cannabis businesses that are also in the TBA service district. I think that got answered shortly after the issue came up, because wasn't there a statement put out by the Public Service Commission? Seems like it. Seems like you're right about that. So that's a good question. Way past the Fed getting out of the way of marijuana and leaving it up to the states, says Paula Meridian. Past the Fed? I think you mean, Paul, that 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 ship's already sailed, right? That the Fed doesn't seem to be interested in intervening. Or are we way past the point of that needing to happen? Oh, I see. Okay. Could go either way. Yeah. Could be. I don't know. I I know that I'm not aware of any situations where the Fed is has intervened in the medical cannabis industry at the state level and said, "Hey guys, you can't do this and we're shutting the banks down and not even in the the retail industries in states where it's legal for recreational use. The only time you've seen the Feds take any action regarding marijuana is when you have these illegal grow operations that are dotted across the country with a big chunk of them in California. Right. And they will go in and raid the illegal operations because that's the same as stopping the cartels from shipping bricks of it over over the border. It's still illegal unless you go through the right channels. It just feels like if they wanted to take action, they would have already done it. I just can't see all of a sudden whomever would be responsible for enforcement, DOJ, just waking up one day and saying, I think we're going to go after all the cannabis dispensaries and cannabis retailers. I mean, just look at the nightmare it would be politically for whoever was pulling that trigger. Big nightmare. That's why it's not going to happen. Hmm. But here we are, still have a bit of a disconnect between the states and the Fed on something like this. Coming right back as Rush bumps us out of this segment. Stay with us. With Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk, Mississippi. I'm a little too tall, could have used a few pounds. 
white pants points hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own sudden way up high Welcome back, everyone. It's Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are live in the Element Wealth Studios today. So, someone said, why don't you just, uh, Paul and Hernando, call a dispensary and find out if it's legal or illegal to use a credit card. I don't know any dispensaries. And, uh... Don't really have any interest in finding out because I do not intend to uh, pursue a medical cannabis card. I don't intend to apply for one, so I really don't know where any dispensaries are located and, and what their phone numbers are. But I bet we can figure it out without having to do that. I was just uh, looking at an article that was published in the Mississippi Business Journal. This was last year, last March, 2022, talking about how this would be, how this would impact the banking segment and whether or not banks would be willing to jump in to the industry and uh, in discussing as uh, Mr. Leisure did, the CEO of Merchants and Marine Bank, earlier on the program, all the various regulatory and record-keeping requirements and reporting requirements. There's a lot of work involved in that, a lot of systems and processes. And many banks may not be willing to make that investment. Uh, some banks are expected, this was the article last year, to take deposits from these companies. That was a statement from Gordon Fellows. He's the president and CEO of the Mississippi Bankers Association, been on the program many times. And he said at that point, each bank is going to have to make individual decisions about their institution's risk tolerance and determine if they are willing to provide services to the industry. And as Mr. Leisure said, banks tend to not like to take big risks, despite what you're seeing happening with Silicon Valley Bank and some of these other fools. That's my experience as well. They're very conservative from a financial perspective and very risk-averse. They have to be, honestly. Otherwise, they end up like SVB. And there are some risks associated with this, and many are shying away from it, but it sounds like, at least at this point, what we know, Merchants and Marine is kind of uh, conquered that hill and come up with a, a system. See where that goes. Interesting. Something else uh, Paula Meridian points out still causes lots of problems illegal for you to buy firearms. Rhino, you want to explain that? I know you have many times before how that works exactly. Yeah, you've, you've got to mark whether or not you're a habitual drug user on the form that you fill out for the background check and you can technically be in a whole lot of trouble for lying on that form, for lying federally. So it's not really best practices to go and purchase a new firearm and get a background check if you also have a medical marijuana card. But retroactively, 
the the fear mongering of oh well you've got a medical marijuana card they're coming to get grandpa's shotgun off the off the mantle no no they're not yeah you would have to commit a crime that would rise to the level of the feds getting involved before they would even notice okay well that makes sense so are you aware of any situations where someone has, I guess, had their firearms confiscated or, I guess, being arrested. Not solely for medical marijuana usage, no. Right. But what about a scenario... There a couple instances where someone was committing or breaking federal law and the feds got involved, and when they raided that person, they found marijuana that they claimed was medical, and it's like, nah, it's against the law. Yeah. So what happens? It literally took them committing a federal crime, the feds investigating, the feds raiding, and then finding marijuana to tack it on. It wasn't even a part of the investigation at that point. So I think the point is the feds aren't out looking for people that happen to fall into the category of having a medical marijuana card and a firearm. I'm not aware that there's any major effort on the part of federal law enforcement agencies Department I mean, there's 20 other questions on that form that if you lie on it, you can be charged criminally, and the prosecution rate is like a thousandth of a percent. I mean, let's be honest. It's it's okay. It's illegal at the federal levels, Schedule One, but yet we got 40 states that are allowing it. I mean, it's a huge conflict. I and at, at this point, I, I just haven't seen any major activity along those lines. It's time for a break here, and it's uh, also top of the hour, so that means the Fox News and Super Talk News. When we come back, Senator Briggs Hobson, stay with us. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three of Middays, live from the Element Well Studios on this hump day. Joining us now, Senator Briggs Hobson represents District 23, which includes Issaquina, Warren, and Yazoo counties. Senator Hobson, of course, serves as the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee. Good to see you there, Senator. Gerard, always great to see you. I wish I could be out there at the studio with you, but uh, the, the circumstances of the Capitol dictate that I stay pretty close to the uh, the office here. I understand. Appreciate you taking a little time to uh, check in with us. So, of course, we're winding things down uh, in the legislature. We've got uh, conference weekend, as it is called, looming, and, and you guys are taking up the appropriations bills. Can you just explain to us, Senator, kind of the, the sequence of events, what we've been doing the last two and a half months, now we head into conference weekend, and then we start taking up these appropriations bills? 
Well, generally, uh, you know, each side passes bills and then they go to the other chamber and then they have the opportunity to go through the whole process again, committee work, and then on to the other chamber. When you have disagreements between the, the two versions of the bill, then you end up going to conference to see if you can resolve those differences. That's kind of the short story. Now, as it relates to appropriations, uh, you have uh, every bill, every agency has a budget and there are approximately 110 budgets that we deal with. And then you have some general bills too that are appropriations bills, but uh, half of the uh, budget bills start in the House, the other half start in the Senate. We swap them. Uh, typically they're gonna go to conference every year. We try sometimes to get special funds uh, out of the way early, but frankly, um, when you're not sure about some of the expenses, um, whether they're gonna be operational considerations, whether they're gonna be salary considerations, you you kind of have to hold everything to the end until you got a real good feel about what your revenue estimate's gonna be. You also know what spending level you wanna be at and, and some of the key projects. And so that's where we are right now. We've gotten okay. to that point where uh, you're talking about the differences between House and Senate measures and, and trying to work out the kinks. Well, I know there's obviously a lot of work you can do, as you indicated, that the agencies are are uh, presenting their proposed budgets that, of course, figure into appropriations. But you've got some measures out there that could cost a whole bunch of money that you might have to consider as well, specifically, the perhaps, uh, the potentially, I should say, the revised MAEP formula. That could figure into yeah. your appropriations process. Yeah, I looked through the bills the other night between uh, the, the Senate bills, uh, MAP being the biggest one on the Senate side, and then the House just had a lot of them stacked together uh, that added up to close to the same dollar figure. And look at bills that have passed each chamber, and, you, and you're talking about uh, hundreds of millions of dollars that are additional uh, budget uh, okay. considerations. And so you're, it's a good point you make because people sometimes forget that is that what we do and what the chambers pass up here, if you end up passing those bills, you're going to build in money to the budget. So that's why we have to be careful about the things that we pass. And and sometimes they just don't make it across the finish line. They'll pass on the first round. And I think the listeners should know this, and you know it well. Uh, some of the things that pass the first round, when you get down to setting your budget, they don't make it across the finish line yeah. because there just aren't enough dollars or there's just not enough uh, joint momentum between the two chambers as to whether or not that should go forward. I know something that uh, you track, of course, diligently serving as the appropriation chair in the Senate is our revenue picture. How are we looking this year? Revenue looks good. You know, talking about 23 revenue, which is the fiscal year in which we're uh, presently uh, considering. We're, we're about $520 million over uh, budget, and um, you know, that's a good thing uh, that we're, we're doing well. Obviously, keeping an eye on things like inflation and uh, and keeping an eye on some of this stuff going on with the banks recently. Frankly, it, it's uh, you don't want to be running around uh, like Chicken Little, but you also need to be cognizant of what's happening in the overall economy as you start looking at what's going to happen for us in scheduling for 24. Uh, you know, what's the state going to look like? What's the nation going to look like uh, economically? Uh, because you want to make sure you've got a, a smart spending picture for our state. You know, historically, Senator, and you know this well, uh, we're... we're um Fairly stable, fairly um, consistent, I should say, in revenues. We don't really have these big spikes when maybe the macro economy is experiencing those. We don't really have these big drop-offs when the macro economy experiences those. And I think that's a function of just um, the the economic ecosystem in our, our state. We're, we're not reliant on one industry that's so subject to these ebbs and flows as some states are. 
So that's kind of a good, bad news sort of deal. But maybe it makes the process a little easier for you guys, you think? Well, I do think that. I think we were, as you said, historically, you'll see Mississippi has not experienced the the tougher times or the tougher cuts during recessions, but we've not experienced the highs that some states and, and nations even experience when you have uh, significant growth. We've been more moderate in decline and moderate in growth, and um, uh, that can be good. And you know, it's also frustrating when you're hitting the highs. You'd like to hit some of the real big highs. And I think the same, uh, you, you mentioned, what do you look at? One thing that uh, we have is, is a fairly balanced tax base. I know there are a lot of discussions last year and even this year about taxes too. But that uh, we, we saw in other states during the, the COVID period and the recession that hit briefly after that or, or the, the, the downturn in the economy that you know some states that are reliant upon one or two forms of taxes can either do really well during certain times or really poorly in other times and uh, we're, we're pretty balanced on our tax base in Mississippi so that's a keeps you from uh, it kind of hedge, hedge some of your concerns that you have about some sharp downturns or, or upticks yeah absolutely uh, something that uh, I wanted to ask you about that I know you you guys are well aware of I've spoken to your colleague Senator Harkins about this on uh, finance but purse uh, PERS is is uh, got a problem. You know it. PERS knows it. Uh, everybody in that dome knows it. There are no easy solutions to this. Seems like we got to be taking some action pretty soon, though, don't we? Uh, I 100% agree. And you know, there was a proposal this year which was caused a lot of concern and angst, and for me too, uh, that would have just raised. And, and this is something the listeners need to understand that the proposal from the board, the PERS board was to raise the employer contribution by 5% from 17.4 to 22.4%. Keep in mind, that means that every agency is gonna have to fund that portion of a retirement. And it's just a a hard pill to swallow, a tough pill to swallow. That was $260 million roughly to the state, not to mention what it was gonna hit uh, for cities and counties and other forms of government that have to pay into retirement system. Uh, So that was the plan that they had. Now. Uh, whether there's an employer contribution increase later on or some change in the system. And I think that has got to be looked at. We, we can't keep kicking this can down the road. And we did to some degree, or they did to some degree this year because they pulled that proposal off the table. But at some point, you're right. I mean, we got uh, a tremendous unfunded liability. And unless something changes with the market, um, you know, some actuarial examples would, would be good. I hope they'll look at that in detail. There may be a combination of things, maybe another tier, which means you'll bring in a, a separate set of standards for people that are coming onto the system later, not those that are in the system. Uh, but there could be some changes that have to be made because look, I think any retiree wants to know, they want to keep their retirement like it is. Uh, anybody that's in the system that's a current employee wants to keep that retirement. It's one of the few things that a lot of people talk about having good in Mississippi as opposed to other states when it comes to pay. But we got to make sure the system's sound or nobody will have a retirement. Yeah. And we've got to do what we need to do to correct that. Same and we situation. hope the PERS board yeah, know, so will take this, that. Uh, go ahead, Senator, go ahead. please. Yeah, well, I was going to say that. It, I you, just hope the 
first board takes that into full consideration uh, in making this decision. They want to keep the system sound and do the right thing for the state and not cause a, a cut to the state budget, which could ultimately yeah. hurt the state overall. Um, so that's some of the stuff they have to consider. And I was just going to add to that, just a clarification, sorry to interrupt you, that the PERS board has the authority to increase the employer contribution. The legislature has the exclusive authority to increase the employee, the worker contribution, which stands now at 9.8 percent seems to be the number that it comes to mind. Is that right? Uh, is it a little it's higher than nine, that? It's it's nine and cha- it's nine and change. Okay. I think it was nine and a quarter. We we bumped it up, and you know, again, tough decision to be made, but it was the right decision that we made about ten years ago, or ten or eleven years ago, I'm guessing, that we made a decision to uh, bump up the employee contribution and move back to what was originally a thirty year. Uh, a 30-year retirement period, and that had been shortened at one point when um, times were were better. And that's, I think, a lesson for all of us that sometimes when times are good doesn't mean you you give up, uh, you know, you change your plan too much. You set a good plan and you you work through it when times are bad and times are good. And usually it's uh, going to end up in the long run being a lot better for you. That's absolutely right. Well, Senator, we appreciate you taking the time to uh, join us today, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you some more as you guys dig more into the appropriations process. Good luck with all that. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Gerard. Always a pleasure to be with you. Yes, sir. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. That keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hot off the press, the grand jury and the circus that is the Trump indictment has uh, been called off for today. What a joke all that is. All they care about is getting him uh, uh, photos of him, images of him, with handcuffs in a jumpsuit. That's all they care about. Which Perp the, the funniest part of all that is... It's it's been stunted a bit, simply because there are so many AI generated pictures <laughs> of of Trump getting arrested, having an altercation with the arresting officers, running away from set off. Like there, I saw no less than twenty different AI generated images last night on social media that had my ribs hurting from laughing. <laughs> Oh, it's a field day, isn't it? It's just all for show. What's really maddening about all this is when you look at the crime and all the other problems in New York City, this is what they're focused on. It's like everything that comes out of the left 
is a misplacement of priorities, isn't it? It's pronouns above profit. Right? It's how to intervene in some discussion about sexual orientation over, I don't know, learning how to fire weapons in the military. Everything is upside down. The whole thing's upside down. It's going out of your way to recognize a man among the women of the year. Upside down. And by the way, nothing about that person's contributions, that, person, that person's accomplishments that might earn such a distinction, that's out the window. Doesn't matter anymore. No, it's all about such bravery. It's unbelievable. And it's, this is spreading across our society. That's what's really bothersome about this. It's the Womixen of color at the Iowa State University. Unbelievable. That's such a big deal they make out of that. It's more important. What did you say yesterday? 132 in the DEI department at Ohio State. 132. Paid positions. Incredible. It's Silicon Valley Bank, all concerned and focused on loaning money to stupid companies with no value proposition and no chance ever of producing a profit. It's their, it's their form of virtue signaling. That's more important than managing their balance sheet. Feelings are more important than financials. It's unbelievable. I'm glad that, that uh, Senator Hobson was able to join us. The one question I didn't get to because of our short time frame there was uh, this three $400 million we got of ARPA money. That'll be figured into the appropriations process, but he'll, he'll be back on. We'll get to him again. And again, it, this is just getting started because they got to work through all these bills. And I wanted wanted to make sure that we understood that. you got to work through the bills to know, well, what are they signing up to spend here? So we know how to appropriate accordingly. So someone told us that they did call. Where is that, Rhino, that they called? Yeah, here we go. Jeff in Hattiesburg. I just called Good Farm Dispensary in Hattiesburg. They are cash only at the moment, a medical cannabis dispensary. Not surprised. This see, uh, it's supposed to be cash, but I believe there are some credit card processing companies that have found loopholes, says Chris from Oxford. Yeah, I did a little digging on that. Apparently, the workaround that was discovered and is now being kind of squashed by federal law okay. is instead of, it was called a cashless ATM, so you swipe your card as if you were making a transaction in an ATM, and it would turn basically an $18 purchase into a $20 cash withdrawal, but you didn't get the cash. Makes sense. Dave from Michigan says, my daughter-in-law is heavy into dispensaries. They are cash only. Hmm. 
Hey, get the public, Jerry in Waynesboro says. Service Commission on and talk about the new high-speed Internet the state has now that's supposedly non-profit, but the rates are the same as a for-profit. Do the math on subscriptions. Hell of a lot of money going somewhere. Well, it was tax money, federal tax money primarily, that went to all the carriers, not all, but those who chose to participate in the electric co-ops to build out the infrastructure to deliver high-speed Internet in the rural areas of the state. I don't really know much about uh, the charges for that, however, Jerry, but it, it was a subsidized effort. It was subsidized by the taxpayers, and you know that's something that could certainly be debated, whether or not that was appropriate use of taxpayer money to um, fund the construction, installation, deployment of these networks to deliver high-speed Internet to the rural areas across the country. So Paula Meridian's still concerned about the uh, the federal government and uh, concerned about them dragging their feet with respect to marijuana legalization and just the, the problems that causes. I mean, I share your concerns. I just I don't see the federal government just mobilizing a major effort to start pursuing this, even though it's still Schedule 1. I, it's, as Rhino said, politically incredibly unpopular. Nobody's going to do anything that would be a liability from a political perspective. I do believe it would be a huge one, honestly. My county supervisor must be running for re-election this year because my road's being repaved today, says Jeff. Uh, gotcha. Please ask the Senator what will be done about rural hospitals this session, or will that can be kicked down the road? You know, that, that kind of begs the question, honestly, what do we want the state to do about rural hospitals? There's a recent report released concerning the Greenwood LaFleur Hospital. That's one that's that's been just teetering on the brink of collapse for a while now. We've discussed that particular institution extensively here on the program, even shared with you their, their cash flow losses, their financial performance over the last five years. They've lost money consistently over the last five years, and in each year, the losses increase. $21 million they lost in 22, fiscal year 22, on revenue of about $105 million. But the board of trustees of the hospital recently met. They convened. Revenue is down. They report $23.9 million compared to $38.1. So that's a, wow, it's a big decrease in revenue for the uh, first five months of the fiscal year for the organization. So it's a $15 million decline in revenue. If that that trajectory holds, that means they're on a revenue trend of about $50 million bucks, which is about half of what it le- was last year. Expenses are down to $32 million for the same period, first five months, compared to $47.6. So 
$15 million decrease in revenue, $15 million decrease in expenses. They got $3.4 million of cash and cash equivalents on the balance sheet. Of that cash, $2.6 million is off limits because it is in a trust account to cover malpractice insurance. That's interesting. So that means that when you net it out, they've got about eight hundred k in cash on hand. Wow. So uh, they're clearly in financial straits. I don't think there's any question about that. What we can report uh, to the person who asked about what's going to be done is that there's an $80 million grant program that is passed the legislature, headed to the governor to sign. And then there's a consolidation bill that essentially enables hospitals, kind of clears a path for them to combine operations legally and to just consolidate into one, multiple into one. And then there's some grant programs for nurse education and so forth. That's about it at this point. We're coming right back. We're in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Super Talk Mississippi. So, Rusty says, my internet through my electric co-op is $84.99 per month. That sounds about right. What speed are you getting there, Rusty? Last I remember seeing, Rhino, 17, 18 or so of the electric co-ops are participating. I think they're either 24 or 25 total in the state. Over 100,000 subscribers have been connected up. I believe that's right. Is that what you're seeing? Does that look... Um, that's seen yeah, rem- 17 wholly-owned subsidiaries okay. of electric cooperatives have okay. now gained, or gotten 100,000-plus rural residents access to high-speed Internet. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, so if you have decided not to participate, I don't, I don't know why. Uh, honestly, again, a combination of federal money and state money, mostly federal money, federal money that flowed through. You remember during the pandemic, a bunch of money was sent to the states because we told all the kids to go home. We had to connect them up, and we had lots of areas of the state across the country. Kids uh, did not have high-speed service and therefore could not participate remotely in class. That was the the rationale for all that money, not only to fund rural internet infrastructure, but also, as you recall, we bought a bunch of computers, right? Laptops and so forth for students. 
because they didn't have them. I wonder what's happened to those laptops now. Are they being used? Are they up to date? Still working? Does anybody account for that? Supposed to. And while I certainly, because we just gave them to them, right? I mean, it's not, they're not the state's property. I don't think. How does that work? It's, a, it's an interesting. If I'm not mistaken, I think issue. they're supposed to check them out like they would a textbook. Okay. So right. You check it out at the first of the year and keep up with it and take care of it and you okay. have to turn it back in just like the textbook at the end of the year. Well, if, if that's you don't, a, you get assessed a fee or a fine. If that's a state asset, then the auditor would be auditing that, accounting for those assets. I haven't really paid attention to that, whether or not that's going on. Interesting. So, uh, and the other aspect uh, of that, of course, is it's it's a bunch of money for that. And while I'm certainly not disagreeing with the notion that there's value in having access to the Internet, sure there is. But do we ever go back and measure the return on that investment? Because it's easy to say, hey, we got to do this because everybody needs to be on the information superhighway and, and uh, this is critical to our economy. Of course, the economy is a global economy, and we've got to be connected to be successful. I, I agree with all that. But do we ever actually go back and measure it? Do we produce meaningful metrics that are, in fact, measurable. Like, what did we get for this? How did this affect our GDP? How did this affect our brain drain? How did this affect new business formation or expansion? Deployment of capital. Apparently, it's not helping Greenwood very much. And I'm not picking on Greenwood, but you got a hospital that's failing serving that area. That would be considered somewhat rural area. You know a lot of the folks in the area that would use utilize the hospital. They live in rural areas of the state that I suspect are being serviced and now connected with this initiative. What are we getting for that? I'm not denying that there's not value in being connected to the Internet. Of course there is. We, we all, I think everybody out there listening, watching, would say, yeah, I get value from that. I agree. But what are the taxpayers getting for that investment? It doesn't seem we ever go back after we sign off on all this and have the ribbon cutting and all the celebrations. Do we ever come back after the fact and say, hey, look what we got for this? I don't think we do. And I'm not picking on the state of Mississippi. I'm talking about just in general and the use of taxpayer money. We kind of check the box, have the big sign-in celebration, boom, gone. Next thing you know, we spent three, $400 million dollars and, and we get folks connected up, I think that's great. I just would be curious to know what did the investment provide in the way of a return? Hmm. Interesting thought. Maybe we ought to run the place like that. <laughs> and I'm really talking about the federal level as well, where we spend trillions and often don't go back and say, this is what we got for that investment. 
measurable results. Crosby from Inverness, Mississippi says, Mr. G, I'm from the Delta, and our rural hospitals are imperative. Thank the good Lord St. Dominic's has a program with Ruleville. Without going through the whole deal, having access to that clinic, my life was extended by years. The state has to operate them, though. It's proven the dollars are being thrown away. Greenwood is a perfect example. Appreciate that, uh, Crosby, and, and glad that the um, clinic was available to you to uh, provide the medical care you needed to uh, extend your life. That's that's good to hear. Yeah, it's a it's a big old problem for which there's no easy answer. It's not like you can say, well, if we just did X, that would solve the problem. It just isn't true. And but it is a problem. It isn't going away, and it's not unique to Mississippi. And that's the other point that I want to make. It's perhaps a more intense problem in Mississippi just as a result of the fact that we're a more impoverished state. We're a poorer state than the others. So it's additional pressure uh, on our state's health care system just because so many of the people that seek care, receive care, don't have a way to pay for it. And it's a, it's a problem. And, and you, you hear some folks, maybe, that are big-time proponents of Medicaid expansion say, well, if we just expanded Medicaid, well, that's not true. Even people who sort of tacitly support it will say, well, no, that's not true. That's, that may be part of a overall solution, comprehensive solution, but it's not the sole exclusive, especially when you consider that Medicaid reimburses Below cost. Cost of providing that care. It's a, That's a big problem. PERS is a big problem. By the way, Social Security and Medicare at the federal level, that problem's not going away either. And uh, now Mike Pence has weighed in. He hasn't announced that he is a candidate for president, but he's I think certainly thinking about it very strongly, and he even came forward in the last few days and said, we got to do something about Social Security and Medicare, and he, uh, he seeks what he calls common sense reform. Well, the common sense, mathematical, simple fact is, you either got to have more coming in or less going out or a combination of the two. We've said it so many times on the program. He actually said that he is for, he floated the idea, he said he doesn't want to touch the benefits for anyone who is presently in retirement. I agree with that. That that's, wouldn't be right. Or anyone, he goes on to say, who will retire in the next 25 years. He told that to an audience of college students at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. Gee, I thought they changed the name of Washington and Lee. I thought they had to get rid of... And can't have that. Got to decolonialize. <laughs> he says, it'll just take courage to do it, and that's where your generation will come in. I agree. And just like Senator Hobson said, perhaps we need to create a new tier. That's an idea that's been floated by the actuaries and others, the board. And all that means is that people that would enter 
the public sector workforce at some day and time when the new tier is launched, those standards, as the Senator said, that the plan itself would be different. What that means is that maybe they contribute a little bit more, their eligibility for retirement is later on in life, maybe they have to participate in the program, work for a longer period, or combination of all those, but essentially it would just define a new, completely new plan for those that enter the program after a certain date, thus a new tier is created. And that would uh, relieve some of the financial pressure on the program. Van Halen bumping us out of this segment on Middays. Coming right back with our final segment. Stay with us. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on! Let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well Studios. It's the final segment here on this Hump Day. We appreciate you joining us. First step towards fixing Social Security may be requiring all federal employees to begin paying into Social Security and do away with the federal retirement. They, they already do. They all already do. So maybe they take it a little more serious if they had to depend on Social Security. Well, the first thing is the number of federal employees is a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of money. It's, it's, a, it's a smidgen of the drop in the bucket, honestly. Um, so it's um, – that's really not the solution because we're talking about trillions here. And, and that won't, uh, that won't uh, solve the problem. Now, there's some that are systems in the country that are grandfathered uh, into – oh, I can't say that, right? That's a, that's, not a, that's a cancelable term – that have these systems where they only participate in their respective pension, and, and they can do that. So if they were hired before 1984 – uh, in the federal government, they don't. So that's kind of the way that works. But it that's not really, unfortunately, going to address the problem. There, but there are some old various pension systems in the country that got waivers where they don't participate in Social Security. They only pay into their respective pension systems. Um, but, again, the bigger problem is we just got more money going out than we got coming in, and we don't have enough coming in to cover the benefits. That's why it's going broke. And that's because we're living longer and receiving benefits for a longer period of time. And we're, we've shrunk the workforce. And the same is true at, in PERS. What did we... Uh, we found out that there are a number in PERS that are over the age of 100 that are, of course, receiving benefits. 
It's incredible. Uh, let's see, there was something else somebody said about the 13th check, and I'm looking for it. And that, uh, of course, yeah, here we go. Gary in the Berg, how much does the 13th check cost each year? I don't know the answer to that, Gary. I could look it up and might be able to do that. But the 13th check in Mississippi is, is um, a feature of the retirement system that's designed to account for cost of living increases. So if you retired a long time ago and you're still around and still receiving benefits, maybe you retired 30 years ago and you retired based on the uh, the value of a dollar, if you will, back then and based on the pay you were receiving at that point, that's that drives and is used to determine your benefits. But over time, of course, the value of the dollar has decreased. Inflation has devalued it. And so the cost of living has increased, but your benefits would remain s- static unless there was some cost of living adjustment. So Security does it based on the CPI. PERS, however, does it in the form of the 13th check. There's two tiers to it. The first one, I can't remember the dates of it. It's like 3% of benefits uh, for whatever the starting through the ending period is for that first tier. If you were in the system at that point, your benefits. And then the the second tier of it, the second component of it, is compounded. That's where it gets expensive. So there are some people out there participating in the PERS system whose 13th check exceeds their standard benefit benefits. It's um, I, so I don't know exactly what it costs, uh, Gary, but it's it's certainly an aspect. But it's the way Mississippi handles the cost of living increase for those who are on the fixed income PERS. Carol in Starkville says, I just saw a cannabis store in Tupelo. Yeah, I think Tupelo does allow it, right? They didn't opt out, as I Correct. recall. Yeah. Not one and of the memory serves, I remember seeing a map of dispensaries dotted around the state. And I want to say Lee County had the most of any county in the state. Oh wow, okay. Is someone going to sue the cannabis industry for smoking-related medical costs like they did tobacco? Or is a Marlboro more dangerous than a doobie, says Darren in Jackson. I'm sure somebody's dreaming up something. Uh, I don't know all the EPAs. It's on the C Spire text line. Best of our knowledge, 17 of the electric co-ops participate in the program. Some, I think they're 24. Five total in the state, so eight or not, right? I don't know which ones. We'll see if we can find out. Uh, There's something else that um, you can thank Brandon Presley for internet services in the rural areas made it possible. What did he do exactly? We we can uh, talk about that tomorrow. What did he specifically do? Because this is something that happened across the country as far as all the ARPA money that, and the pre-ARPA money that came in the COVID era to fund rural uh, and just high-speed internet in general. Out of time here today, back in the studio tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.